0: We have people now who lived through World War II, through the Depression. There are some amazing stories out there that are going to be lost as the generation before passes away. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a Certified Caregiving Consultant and a Certified Caregiving Educator. Being a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, was the biggest education that I had into the caregiving world, and I'm happy to share what I know with our listeners.
1: And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate.
0: And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
1: Here, we're going to focus on the caregiver, offer practical insights, and share some emotional support. And maybe even we'll share a laugh or two, and we all know that laughing is, in fact, the best medicine.
0: And don't forget the wine, Mike.
1: Oh, no, I'll never forget the wine.
0: So, Mike, when your dad first came to live with us, and I realized that, you know, we were going to be in this for a lot longer than I thought and a lot more uh, complicated, I decided that one of the things I wanted to do was to learn to speak a little bit of Italian. So if the time came during our caregiving years that he reverted to his original language, that I would be able to communicate with him. Now, I never really became fluent, but I liked the way his eyes would light up if I would come in the room and uh, say something in Italian to him, ask him if he was hungry or where you were. Um, and communication with people with dementia is so important and often really complicated.
1: I, I remember how his eyes would light up and it'd say, oh, you did
0: pretty good. You did pretty good. I don't know if
1: I do that good anymore. Remember he used to say that. Yes,
0: that's some of the special moments that we had with him.
1: And communication is, in fact, very, very important.
0: So that brings us to today's guest, who resides in Memphis, is a professor of psychology and associate dean and director of graduate studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Memphis. He earned his graduate degrees in experimental psychology at Princeton University and conducts research on discourse, pragmatics. In Non-Literal Language. His third co-authored book was recently released by the MIT Press, and the title is Changing Minds, How Aging Affects Language and How Language Affects Aging. Please welcome to our show, Dr. Roger Cruz.
1: Hi, Dr. Cruz. It's great to be here. Thank
0: you. I had a chance to read through your book, and um, I'm absolutely fascinated with with the subject matter, especially as a true senior citizen who is now having difficulty sometimes finding the words that I want. And because I live in the in the caregiving world, that's often a little anxiety provoking. And I think, oh, is this beginning of something that um, I should be aware of? So can you tell us um, what changes, you know, in language and aging and how they come together and the impact that they have on us?
2: Well, there are a number of things that are going on as we're aging. Uh, typically, our perceptual abilities become worse. We can't see or hear as well as we do when we were younger. And as we all know, our memory abilities also tend to decline with age. But one of the things that we discovered in writing our book was that there really seems to be much less loss in terms of language ability compared to what's going on with memory and perception. Of course, language is dependent upon memory and perception, and so there are some uh, declines uh, due to that, but in general, language for people who are aging normally holds up quite well. Even with people who have dementia, sometimes their language abilities are remarkably preserved in comparison to, for example, their memory ability. Uh, The things they say may be impaired, um, but in terms of being able to produce language and comprehend language, there seems to be some real preservation of that skill over time. Have you
1: seen any... um Uh, differences in somebody who is bilingual or in the case of Europeans where they're multilingual, that some of the language um, languages that they know kind of fade away and they revert back to, uh, say, a native language like we were concerned with my dad reverting back to Italian that we wouldn't be able to communicate.
2: Yeah, there was a theory that's been around for quite a while that perhaps what happens with uh, dementia and cognitive decline is you might see people reverting back to an earlier language that they use more extensively than perhaps a, a later language. And the research is quite mixed on that. That does happen in some cases. Other cases, that doesn't seem to occur at all. So there's not a great deal of support for the idea that things always move in one particular direction. It seems like it's more complex in terms of the uh, actual outcome.
0: Well, we also know in dementia that sometimes the mentally go back in time so when he's yeah. speaking italian to me it could be that he's reliving moments in italy when he was a much younger man and that's the language that he spoke
2: interesting yeah i mean it really is the case that the context is going to be quite crucial in such situations and being able to for example speak a, a language that um perhaps the uh, um, individual grew up with could be really beneficial in those cases.
0: Now, in my particular case, and I, and, I, and I mentioned before the inability to find a word right in the middle of the sentence, I sometimes think it's because as I'm speaking, I'm almost thinking of the next, the next sentence, so I lose track of what I want to say. But I also will tell people, I've reached the age of 70, and I have so much stuff in my head that sometimes something yeah. falls out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a sponge can only hold so much.
2: Yeah, I think that's really you know a crucial point because when younger people forget what they're talking about or uh, can't think of a word, they just laugh it off. It's not a big deal. It's not until you're later in life that you're worrying about the possibility that such mistakes might be a harbinger of some other, something else that we get kind of concerned about that. And it is the case that um, having words on the tip of one's tongue or not being able to recall a word, uh, that does increase its age, but the frequency is still relatively low. So there's this other school of thought that, you know, it does reflect the fact that you simply know more words. You know, a five-year-old doesn't have to keep track of that many people's names. Right. They haven't met that many people yet. <laughs> but somebody who is uh, 75 knows thousands of people's names, people that they've met, people they've read about. Uh, so it really is the case that just as finding one book in a small library is easier than finding it in a large library you're going to see a similar issue. So in a way, it's a good problem to have because it reflects the fact that you have a great deal of world knowledge.
0: And my daughter says my mom knows every single word. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been a lifelong reader and you know crossword yeah. puzzle person and uh, word and a writer. So words and language are part of my everyday life. I start everyday reading, sure. I end everyday reading, and I do a lot of reading in between. So th- there's a lot of words in there, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: And that was that yeah. was a quite an interesting analogy about finding a book in a small library as opposed to finding a book in a large library. I like that and I'm gonna steal that. <laughs>
0: you may. <laughs> so tell us more about the research that you're doing and you know, some of the other topics that are of interest to our readers that they'll find in your book.
2: Well, certainly one thing that many older adults worry about is, you know, the possibility that they are having some sort of cognitive decline occurring. And so there's been a lot of research in many labs across the world really trying to see what sorts of things might uh, tend to uh, forestall that. And one of the most interesting lines of research, in my opinion, is work coming out of the Yale University School of Public Health showing that reading fiction across one's lifespan seems to be protective of uh, cognitive decline.
0: Oh, I'm in good shape. They actually
2: found... <laughs> <laughs> good. They actually found a 20% lower mortality rate for readers of fiction compared to others. Now, I should, of course, preface that by saying this is a correlational study. You can't do a true experiment where you keep people from reading in one group and have people reading in a different group. You can't do that. But even when they control things like gender and education, marital status, affluence, they still found that people who read fiction, and were talking about a little as three minutes a day, that seemed to be beneficial. And the idea here is that the cognitive effort required in creating a narrative world in your mind, keeping track of characters, their motivations, the plot, that does seem to be the kind of mental activity that confers cognitive benefits.
0: Hmm. So how did you become interested in this field?
2: Well, I've had a lifelong interest in language. I've researched a number of different topics over the years. I myself lost my mother to uh, Alzheimer's disease a few years ago. And during the last you know, few months of her decline, I was really quite struck by how, even though in many respects she was greatly impaired, she was still able to you know, uh, speak uh, volumes. And I thought, wow, there really seems to be some sort of disconnect here between language ability and language production and the other cognitive abilities that are being so greatly impaired by the, the uh, progression of the disease. And so I think they kind of planted a seed in my mind and I wanted to explore and read more of this literature that exists in my field in psychology. And it's really exploding. The amount of people doing good research on uh, language and aging is just growing all the time. And I really wanted to share this research with a, a larger audience. And that was kind of the, the, the reason for the book.
1: So it, it, it's interesting. Um, I'm sitting here trying to noodle through how you would do research on language and the effect of language. Could you could you tell our listeners a little bit about that?
2: Well, there are a variety of ways of doing this. For example, one very well known study of um, language and aging was conducted with a group of nuns who were living in the Upper Midwest. This is work by David Snowden. He found that these nuns had written autobiographies, short little narratives about their lives when they entered into the convent, and then was able to use that and correlate that with their language abilities many decades later when they were retired from um, their teaching profession because all these sons were were teachers. And he found that he could analyze, for example, the grammatical complexity of these um, narratives written early in their lives, put very simply how many words they were using, how long the sentences were, and found a remarkably strong relationship between these narratives written early in life and then later incidents of uh, cognitive decline and uh, dementia at the end of their lives. There really does seem to be a way in which language and trying to um, analyze at a very um, fine level can can tell us very important things about um, uh, 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 cognitive outcomes across a longer period of time. The psychologists work, work with linguists and look at all sorts of different sorts of factors you can do in laboratory experiments of course you can look at things like where people are looking during their during the act of reading you can uh analyze their speech for a variety of factors there's just a whole bunch of different ways that researchers have figured out to look at different aspects of language and then try, try to correlate these with uh cognitive outcomes
1: interesting so then, let me make sure i un- i understood what you said in a in a layman's uh sense that as they when they were retiring and they got older, their language ability to talk about when they were younger was diminished. As opposed to them embellishing the story more, I would think that. I, I guess it's counterintuitive to me. I would think that they would have found more stuff to talk about as they were older. Yeah, it
2: wasn't it wasn't that they were talking about their, their, their earlier lives. They actually had written these narratives early in life when they first entered into the convent. Right. And then the researchers are looking at that, um, uh, those narratives in comparison to how these women were performing on cognitive tasks, uh, later in life. And that may have included language tasks, but also other membrane perceptual uh, tasks as well.
0: So is this, um, Ongoing research, and is there more research into the effect of Alzheimer's and the other forms of dementia on language? And one of the reasons why that I asked that is one of the things that is often frustrating for caregivers is when they get into a loop and they and perhaps say the same sentence over and over and over again, or somebody who was very um, unlikely to use curse words is all of a sudden spewing. Right. Curse words, and I have a a nephew who had Tourette syndrome, and that's one of the things that he did. He, you know, he had what they call the cursing tick, and I wonder if there might be some connection there.
2: Well, certainly, in the case of repetitions by words or by phrases, there really is a good body of research, and this research is still ongoing, looking at, for example, uh, writers and um, how they write changing over time. So in the book, we talk about the case of Iris Murdoch, the very well-known British author, who in her last novel really seemed to be struggling in terms of expressing herself linguistically. Lots of word and phrase repetitions, lots of um, uh, repeated words over and over again, uh, which was very uh, different from her early work. And after she passed away, it turned out she had dementia when she uh, wrote her final book. Uh, researchers decided to look at her other books written throughout her entire career and found that as early as her fifties, she was starting to show signs of these sorts of repetitions that were occurring. So we see it in writers. We see it in politicians. People have analyzed Ronald Reagan's um, press conferences to see if compared to uh, somebody who aged normally in the comparison, that's what it was uh, actually George H.W. Uh, Bush um, Reagan did seem to, towards the end of his uh, presidency, was, was using a small vocabulary size, was using more kinds of lexical fillers, like um and well, and using nouns that were less specific, like everyone or someone, in comparison to uh, the language used by George H.W. Bush in his press conferences. So researchers are really creative. They find very interesting ways to try to look at different populations, for whom we do have a linguistic record, and then to see, you know, if that correlates with outcomes in terms of uh, cognitive decline later in life. You know,
0: it's interesting that you brought up Reagan because uh, <laughs> I frequently told Mike during uh, Reagan's last years in office, "There's, there's something wrong with him. We're going to find out after he's left office." that there that he's sick in some way that there's something wrong going there. So um mm. I recognize some of those changes in him.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think the more time that you spend with people who are experiencing cognitive decline the more aware you become that there are some very characteristic signs that that people will show in their language.
1: Well, I you know, I've often heard that the closer you are to the person the less you Realize it sometimes, right? If you put the, um, what, it, what is the old saying? You put the frog in cold water and heat it gradually. He doesn't know he's, oh, right. getting, he's getting heated and, right. and boiled until it's way too late. Um, so you're saying that you can, people close by can also notice the opposite.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, obviously knowing uh, an individual plays a huge role here. Because even people sometimes with fairly advanced cognitive decline might seem relatively normal to those who don't know them, because they have certain kinds of formulaic of expressions they uh, might use. You know, hello, how are you? You know, uh, not too bad. How's the weather? That kind of thing. So even sometimes people with a great deal of impairment can appear relatively normal because they do have the stock of what we call frozen expressions. Right. These kind of little small talk uh, items that people use, but then. If you were to talk to them for a longer period of time, you would, you know, discover there were some pretty pretty serious cognitive issues that are going on there. So certainly familiarity with the person matters quite a bit.
1: Yeah, my dad, um, he would he would go into a uh, almost a rehearsed type of uh, conversation. Hi, how are yeah. you? Nice to meet you. How's everything? Yeah. Everything's going good. Okay, boom. He was done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we hear a lot about physicians telling people as they age to, to keep moving, to, to mm-hmm. kind of keep everything going. What would you suggest um, uh, people to do for their cognitive ability? Is there anything that they can do?
2: Yeah, just as a physician would tell people to keep moving, I think psychologists would tell people that they very much want to keep reading and keep writing. We've already touched on the reading issue and, and the importance of reading fiction there's also research that suggests that writing is really important as well. There is one study that was done looking at people who kept journals over the course of their lifetime, and that turned out to be uh, protective as well. They saw a lower incidence of dementia uh, in individuals who were inveterate journal keepers compared to those who weren't. And one of the most um, uh, compelling issues was uh, how long the words they used in these journals. So, words that were six or more letters in length. That seems very arbitrary, but that's how the researchers did it. Words that were six letters of length or, or longer, uh, and, and the frequency of, of those longer words seem to be associated with the uh, a, a lower incidence of developing dementia. So, writing seems to be really really important as well. Writing and having a large vocabulary and using that vocabulary seems to be really important.
0: Well, I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good. She's always writing and always reading fiction.
0: Um, there you go. But it's also one of the things that um, I try to teach people when communicating with someone with dementia is to use small words and use a small number of words because yeah. they get lost in the sentence if you try to put too many words together.
2: Yeah, that, uh English has the ability to create some very complex grammatical <laughs> sentences. And that's not just a problem in language, it's a problem in memory as well. So You're absolutely right. You know, keeping sentences short, not having, you know, any kind of uh, complex set of clauses or passive voice or anything like that. Yeah, you know, short, direct sentences can be much um, more easy to comprehend if you are experiencing some sort of cognitive impairment. Well,
1: I remember my, my mom and dad in interactions. My mom would send my dad to the store. And she would go into this very long paragraph um, of, I, I want you to get a loaf of bread. I want the Italian bread with the sesame seeds. I don't want wheat. I don't want multigrain. I don't want rye either with oh, or yeah. without the seeds. I don't want this. I don't want that. I don't want the other thing. And my dad would walk to the store, which was not that far, and he liked to walk. And he would get to the store, and he would look at the bread rack. And, of course, there's a multitude of breads, and he would start going through. I was supposed to get something with seeds, and she did say rye bread, and here's rye bread with seeds. (laughs) And he would bring back the rye bread, and my mother would go into this tirade. I told you I didn't want this or this or this. And I used to tell her mom. Just say, go to the store, get Italian bread with sesame seeds, stop. (laughs) You're confusing him with too much input, and he's going to get it wrong.
2: Yeah, that's a really characteristic thing that we see uh, in older adults with language. Even people who are aging normally have a problem with what's referred to as inhibition. So if you activate a concept in somebody's mind, for somebody who's younger, they'll say, oh, that's not an important, um, you know, fact or word and right. oh, I can forget about it. But people who are older have uh less ability to inhibit information that's irrelevant. And therefore once it's activated, it might actually cause, you know, some sort of confusion or some sort of um um mistake that leads to the kind of outcome you're referring to. That that's very characteristic. Yeah.
0: Now for me the problem is too much input when we're dealing with numbers. If you're you're trying mm. to talk to me about you know what things cost or what the taxes are and how that works, and then I just kind of my eyes start spinning and I will say too much input. Slow down, um, right?
1: Or, or break it down.
0: My my brain is a more word-oriented, verbal, um, writing, creative process. And so when we get into figures, I just start drowning.
1: Yeah, we're, we we are complete um, opposite. She's she's very very cloudish, and I'm very linear, right? Mm-hmm. Point A to point B, and and that straight line, and and she.
0: I'm creative. Creative. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there's research that people, you know, couples that have different strengths and weaknesses actually make for a very good team. For for example, storytelling. There's a very interesting literature that suggests that. Older adults who are aging normally are really good storytellers because they've had a lifetime of experience telling stories, getting feedback about, you know, what works or what doesn't work. And a couple telling a story together can, you know, kind of fill in for each other and, you know, uh, serve as a memory cue or uh, uh, add a different point of view. So there are some really interesting ways in which couples can kind of compensate for each other in terms of, of different cognitive skills.
1: Well, one of the things with us is we we know how different we are, but we embrace those yeah. differences, and we also tap into the other. She's stronger at mm-hmm. this. This is I'm I'm gonna let her. Um, I'm not gonna try to outdo her because I know she's way better than me. And the opposite yeah. of that is true too. We embrace the differences and we use the strengths of the other to compensate for my weaknesses, I should say.
0: Until they're <laughs> driving us crazy. <laughs> we have those moments too. Um,
2: of course,
1: yeah. I'm going to circle back. You mentioned about um, encouraging um, the people to, to keep writing. If they've not been a writer or they haven't written for the most part their whole life, how do you, how do you pull that out? How do you encourage that?
2: I think the idea of people, you know, just starting to write down their um, reactions to everyday events can be a good place to start. Lots of people aren't very introspective.
1: You mean like journaling?
2: Yeah, okay. Journaling would be one way to do it, but there are many others as well. I mean, sometimes people are told just, you know, write a letter to somebody. Hmm. You know, you have to be a person who's still alive. Just write a letter to your dad or, or your grandfather, just hmm. find them, you know, what you've experienced over the last few days. So there are lots of different ways to do it. I think journaling has a certain kind of um, you know, some people kind of react against that, saying, well, it's very, you know, narcissistic, you know, it's, everything that's happening to me. But it can be about anything. You can write about you know, current events. You can write about any sort of topic. But the important thing is the mental activity of translating your thoughts into language seems to be a really important and protective um, uh, thing that uh, can be developed over time.
0: And, you know, older people have had like you said, so many different experiences. And if we can encourage them to write those stories down, to share with their children and their grandchildren, I mean, we have people now who who are alive, who lived through World War II, through the Depression. Um, We had women who were you know, pilots when women weren't allowed to fly because they were needed. There are some amazing stories out there that are going to be lost as at every generation when the generation before passes away. So if we can encourage them to tell, to write those stories down and they don't have to be perfect, you know, perfect sentences. They don't have to be um, anything really exciting. Um, I work with a group of senior citizens, um, with creating writing on a weekly basis. And somebody wrote a story about the first time she tried to make a lemon meringue pie, and it was a total disaster. And it was a great story.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize how interesting their own lives are to people who are younger than them. So just talking to my dad recently, my dad was in his mid-80s, and uh, was telling me some stories about his life growing up on a farm. I was just enthralled. I'd never heard these stories before. And I think it's very easy for people to, not realize how what seems mundane for them is actually quite interesting for somebody who might be a lot, lot younger, for example. So it really is the case that writing a memoir or just you know, telling these stories can be a, an incredibly valuable thing to do. It's
1: interesting because uh, Bobby was, the, uh, was a staff writer for our local community newspaper, and she did a column called What's Your Story? And she would just <laughs> walk up to an everyday person and ask what's your story. Everybody has a story to tell. And she asked this woman, um, "Why don't you take it from here, honey?" Uh, the um, Irene.
0: Oh, she had been a hat model in New York City. Now, oh. you never would, you know, you never would have heard that if somebody didn't just come up and say, "Hey, start talking about what something an exciting part in your life." But I yep. would like to ask you. If I'm a caregiver with somebody with dementia who's having a problem maybe expressing themselves, is there a way for me, to, certain way to approach them verbally? Or what would you suggest to help me communicate with that person?
2: Well, I think what we talked about earlier, the idea of using simple sentences, simple vocabulary, and that's really going to be helpful. It's also helpful, especially if they're having some perceptual issues. For example, it's not unusual for somebody with dementia to also be having uh, perceptual problems, like not being able to hear very well. It's important that you speak directly to people so they can see your lips moving. That actually helps even people who aren't uh, hard of hearing. A lot of people say, well, I don't read lips. But it turns out that experiments suggest that being able to see a person's face while they're speaking makes it much easier to understand that person. So even very simple things like making sure you've got direct face-to-face contact can be helpful in terms of ensuring comprehension.
1: You know, that's interesting because uh, uh, dubbed movies drive me absolutely bonkers. And ah. <laughs> I'm good for about 10 minutes and then that's it because, and, and I don't lip read, but because it's not in sync, it, right. it, it just makes me nutso.
0: Well, no. or where I struggle is if I'm speaking with somebody and they're walking around and they're they're reaching for the coffee pot or doing something like that and I can't connect with them visually.
1: Who would do that? So right.
0: That's no. a problem for me. <laughs>
1: I would never do that. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Cruz, thank you so much for being our guest today. We learned so much from you and really appreciate you um, taking the time to spend with us.
2: You're very welcome. I enjoyed it.
0: And we will put links to your book um, on our website. And again, we really appreciate your being here. And I learned a lot today, and I hope my husband did too, about (laughs) looking at me when I'm talking to him.
2: Yeah. Well, Thank you so much.
0: Well, like I said, I certainly learned something from him. Um, Part of the discussion included the fact that linguistic changes associated with dementia include reductions in vocabulary size, the use of more fillers such as well or ah or um, and fewer specific nouns like we, they, something or everything.
1: Yes, and that we should encourage writing and reading and specifically reading fiction is more beneficial than reading nonfiction, like i do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be you're going to be fine. I'll see to it one way or another.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll see down the road.
0: You can find more information about Professor Cruz on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That and I'm Bobby.
1: And I'm Mike.
0: And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
1: So please subscribe to the show. Go to iTunes and post a review and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we can help, or if you have a question you'd like for us to address, or if you just want to say hi, please do. To find out more about us, or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to RogerThat.Show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org.
0: Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.